yes, <coughs> I get emotional about Spud or whoever, but uh, for those of you who don't me, know me, I am a crier, okay? I, I, I have been given this embarrassing gift of tears, uh, but now I quite like it. Not because I like to cry. Um, I like it uh, because of, I've come to realize I cry so often when I preach because I've never got over the joy of Jesus saving me. I, I, I cry so often when I preach uh, because it still takes my breath away that I have him as a friend. Have him as a friend. There is nothing more important and no greater privilege or joy in life than to have Jesus as a friend. And that's the truth. So it takes my breath away that I have him as a friend. And for this morning, I want us to take a look at a friendship between Peter and Jesus. I want us to look at that friendship, Peter, one of his closest three, uh, one of his best friends, if not his best friend, John and James would maybe argue they were his best friend. It doesn't really matter, but he was one of Jesus' best friends. And we want to look at that relationship to help us understand how to fight well and how to love well and how to expect God to do things in our lives. So we're, we're, going, to look at, we're going to look at that. Um, and the reason I want to look at that is because more than any other person in Scripture, for me anyway, but more than any other person in Scripture uh, that, that seems to inhabit the essence of who we are is Peter. I look at Peter and I read about Peter and say, yep, that's me. Um, I can relate to that. He inhabits us. Um, we understand the things he goes through because we would do some of the dumb stuff he does or we would try some of the things that he tried. So, uh, you know, I have had those all-in moments for, for Jesus where I'm like, jump out of the boat first. I'll cut somebody's ear off, metaphorically speaking. Uh, you know, I'm all in. God, if you're in this, I'm in this. Let's go. Let's have a fight. We can do this. I don't mind failure. I will have a go at anything. If God says to do it, let's go. It's his fault if it doesn't work out. Not mine. We'll have a go. I'm more afraid of success than I am failure. I'll have a go. I don't mind failing. God in this. God's in this. Let's go. I've had those moments but I've also had, on the flip side, those other Peter moments where, um, uh, you know, I think I'm, you know, as solid as a rock sometimes, but then if a little girl says something around a fire about Jesus, you know, uh, I pretend I don't know him. Or I've had those epic uh, fail moments where I know there's been an opportunity and I, I haven't even got the, the sort of fight in me to pray for my own family and friends, never mind a stranger. Or those times in my faith where I, I know I'm just coasting, I'm weak, but on the outside I'm pretending that I'm strong. So I've had those epic all-in moments, but I've also recognized in myself those Peter moments where I could deny Jesus in front of a little girl around a campfire because she intimidates me. So we can relate to Peter because he is the underdog who comes back fighting. And he is the guy that, um, when I read about him, uh, probably the, the, the thing that I love most about Peter um, is that he fills me with hope. He fills me with hope because if Peter could have a go, well, then I can have a go. And that's why I love Peter. And that's why I want to look at their relationship. I think that this conference could have actually been called Hope or Fight. 
Jeff talked about hope in his videos and, 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 and uh, obviously the hope in the prodigal son coming back to the father. And that's really what fight means in my mind. Even when God seems far off, even when things are not going the way we planned or even the way we thought they were, I still have hope in who Jesus says he is. I will hang in there. I will stand my ground. I will fight. I will hope. Now, this is the thing with hope. Most people uh, um, who aren't Christians, but even lots of Christians ourselves, uh, we understand hope just as wishful thinking, okay? So, yes, I'm a Liverpool fan. I hope Liverpool will win the league uh, this year. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more than just hope. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of expectancy in that this year, not like previous years. But anyway, or, or I hope I'm going to pass my driving test, or I hope I'll get that promotion and work. Um, you know, we, we have that sort of wishful thinking about hope. That's what uh, most people think hope is, but that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is very different just to normal hope. Whenever Scripture talks about hope, it means uh, uh, the biblical definition of hope is confident expectation. We have a confident expectation that Jesus is going to do something today that will change us. We, we praying for this week, we have confident expectation, not just wishful thinking or a hope that, that God is going to meet you in a powerful way today. And He's already been doing that with some people. We hope for the things uh, that God has promised, not with wishful thinking, but with uh, confident expectation and also firm assurance. Firm assurance regarding the things Jesus has done, but also assurance in terms of the things that he says he will continue to do. So, Romans 8, 24, some verses around hope, very simply, do we get hope in their mind? For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope or if we fight for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Let us hold unswervingly to. Hebrews 10, 23. Hold unswervingly to. What's that mean? Let us fight for the hope we profess. For he who, is, for he who has promised is faithful. We know these scriptures. The hope we have in Jesus is faithful. There is an expectation that He will show up and do the things that He says He will do and that He can do, even if we have not seen them in a long time. Rather than developing a theology of lack because He hasn't showed up the way we want Him to, we need to develop a practice of a hunger for more. Yes! <laughs> we have to hunger for more and expect Him to show up in those situations and circumstances where for many of us, we turn our back on Him. Exodus 14, 14. It's, it's, it's an obvious fight scripture because it says the Lord Himself fights for us. We have the Egyptians coming in and He says, no, no, watch, wait and see. The Lord himself will fight for you. These Egyptians will be seen no longer. Wait, watch, look. The Lord himself will fight for you. That's his promise. We wait and we have hope that he will show up. Not wishful thinking, but because he says he will and because we know he can. 
So let's look at some key encounters of Peter and Jesus, this relationship of hope, this relationship where um, we see this friendship develop and blossom, and let's see how we can connect with Jesus afresh today to keep fighting for him for more. Is that right? Are we with me? Cool. Here we go. So the first one I want to look at, key encounter with Peter and Jesus, is the very first one. Luke 5 tells it the best. It's the story you should know. Lots of you will know. It's, it's uh, Jesus teaching to the crowds, and he, he, he says to Peter, look, can I get into your boat? Because the crowds are all pressing on him, and, and he wants to teach where they can't press on him, and people in the back can get a better view, and he's in the boat, and he's teaching them, and after he finishes teaching them, he says to Peter, will you row out a little bit deeper? Rows out a little bit deeper, says, cast out your nets. We know the story. Peter's been fishing all night. He hasn't caught a tiddly wink, diddly squat. He's caught nothing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I, I know these waters. This is my turf. You know, might be a good preacher and teacher and you've done all these miracles, but like, fished these waters just last night, didn't catch a thing. And he, you know, he has that, he just, in my mind, he just sort of like belly flops the nets out, doesn't even unfold them, just like, yeah, whatever. You know, he just drops the nets out. And then there's this miraculous catch of fish. This miraculous catch of fish. And he has to call for his mates in the other boats. Come over and help me. Come and help me. And they bring in the catch of fish. The boats are sinking because there's so much fish caught. This miracle of miracles. Now, if I was a fisherman and I met somebody who could help me fish much better, I wouldn't tell him to get away from me. I would say, come and hang out with me more. But what does Peter say to Jesus? Here we have it. Um, verse 8 in Luke 5. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Get away from me, Jesus. I, I picture him, on, it says he's at Jesus' feet. So if you think, like, fish stink, you know. If this boat is full of fish, I, I imagine him sort of lying flat in, the, flat in this. My first thing, I thought of his knees, but it just says he's at Jesus' feet. I imagine him flat out on his face with all these smelly fish jumping all around him, like, stinking dirty, and he's just like, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When Peter fell on his knees amongst the smelly fish, and begged Jesus to get away from him. Yes, he was astonished at the power, at the miraculous power that had just happened because he knows how to fish, right? And he's just, this is, this has to be somebody who I can't compete with. This is, this is beyond reason. This is, uh, this person has power that I never knew. And, and of course, he's astonished at that power and, and, he, and, he, and he's afraid. But uh, th this is where I want to go today. I don't think Peter at that moment had a fear of Jesus' power. I think the crippling fear was a fear of his own inadequacies. I think when he seen what Jesus could do compared to what he could do, he was like, I have nothing to give here. And he has this fear that makes him fall on his knees and say, get away from me, Lord. Have you ever asked Jesus to get away from you? Have you ever asked him? No. I probably think many of you haven't, but, but we do things that we might as well be saying that. 
in a more subtle way. Lord, get away. You know, I can't do that. I, I don't want that. I work with young people, as, as Spud said. Um, I became a Christian uh, nearly, nearly 20 years ago, and I coached, coached football, all that kind of stuff. So when I became a Christian, it was like, well, when you're a Christian, you have to do stuff, don't you? You have to help in the church. I'll help with the young people. You know, I'll have a laugh with them type thing. That's how I get into youth work, just because I think I could have a laugh with young people. Uh, and from that time, then God birthed something in me uh, to work with young people, and it will not go away. And so I keep doing it. Uh, so anyway, I, I work with young people, have done that for the last 20 years. Uh, and the thing I have noticed over the last uh, probably seven or eight, maybe even 10, well, probably seven or eight years um, is this crippling fear that young people have related to their own inadequacies. You see, everything is geared towards success and popularity and having to be the best or the expert at something for our young people. You can't just be okay at something anymore. You have to be legendary, or even if it's a computer game, you have to be, like, have so many kills. You have to be epic. You don't tell anybody unless you're really, really good at something. It's crazy, the culture that they're in. And, and they have to let the whole world know that they're epic as well. And even if they are epic, but the whole world and their likes or whatever don't tell them that they're epic, they don't think they're epic anymore. They think they're awful. And they have this constant uh, wheel that they're going on of, of trying to be uh, brilliant at something, and if they're not amazing at something, well, there's not really much point doing it. So they have, as we see in terms of our figures, even some of the stats that, that Spot is putting up, this cycle of low sense self-esteem, this cycle of anxiety, this cycle of mental health concerns, this cycle of not being good enough, this cycle with our young people, uh, that unless they are absolutely incredible at something, there's no point in trying, so I'll just tap out of that. And they're so afraid to deal with the things that they actually discover they're inadequate in. That they tap out or they cover up or they hide or they just don't try. It's crazy. So young people are growing up feeling inadequate or feeling they are lacking in something because they're not an expert in it. And from a young age, they feel they have nothing to offer. If we go back to the story in this, in this very moment where uh, Peter is feeling inadequate He's feeling hopeless. Right at that moment, Peter feels he has nothing to give at all. I don't even know how to fish anymore, Jesus. The only thing I was good at. I have nothing to offer you. Get away from me. Right in that moment of feeling inadequate, right in that moment of feeling hopeless, Jesus has greater hope in Peter than he has in himself. Right in that moment, Jesus has greater hope in Peter than Peter has in himself. In my times of no hope, in my times of feeling inadequate, in my times of having no fight left in me, Jesus has greater hope in me than I have in me. In your times of feeling worthless, in your times of feeling inadequate, in your times of feeling there is no hope and you have no fight left, Jesus has greater hope in you than you have in yourself. Uh, whenever uh, Jeff in the last, last section talked about shame, it was so evident 
that so many of the men in this room are sitting here in shame of things that you have done. It wasn't that you even felt God was ashamed of you. You were sitting feeling shamed in terms of what you have done then, thinking how God sees you in that shame. And that was what was in the room. As Jesus looks at you in this moment where you feel shame for the things you have done or shame for the things even you have not done or whatever it is, the shame you feel, Jesus has more hope for you today than the hope you have for yourself and your relationship with him. I, I lived in uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne for a couple of years. Um, I, whenever I became a Christian, I, I, you know, I just had struggled with Jesus all my life. He had showed up in miraculous ways for years, and I, I avoided him for years. I'll not go into it all, but, but whenever I finally gave my life to him at the age of 23, it was like, like he's flipping real. Just tell people about him. He, it's obvious that he's real. So I was an evangelist. I just told people about Jesus. It's what I did. I went to Newcastle upon Tyne to train to be an evangelist for a couple of years. We lived in rough Tyneside, right down by the Tyne, working class Tyneside on the river in this little place called Wellington Quay. And um, uh, the, the tunnel to, uh, from North Shield to South Shield sort of hems this little community in. High deprivation, you know, single parents, fatherless generation, all that kind of stuff. So we're in this church working in this place, done great stuff for young people, great stuff for moms, great stuff for kids, and the dads were nowhere. So I was there about three or four months, and I was like, where are all the men? And they were like, oh, they're all in the morgue. I was like, what do you mean they're in the morgue? So the pub was called the morgue, okay? Uh, and, uh, and I was like, what, what, are they all dead? Like, where are the men? They go, no, no, they're actually alive, but they're in the morgue. Okay, that's weird. So, and it was nicknamed the morgue because the funeral parlor, when it got full, used to use the basement of the pub to store the dead bodies. And so it got the nickname the morgue, okay? So, but they wouldn't let me into this place because they thought I was the local vicar of the church. And they were thought, oh, we can't have the vicar coming to the pub. So I kept pestering them. I said, let me into the pub. And they're like, no, vicar, go away, vicar. Anyway, so I eventually just said, like, I just want to come in and watch the football. Uh, and like hang out, I'm not, I'm not scary. And it took me literally, I would go up to, you had to get a big private key fob to get into this place. And, uh, uh, um, and once you're there, you die because it's the work. Anyway, but um, so you had to, and I kept thinking up and ringing the buzzer. And they were like, hello, it's the Irish guy. I'm not a vicar. Yes, I work in the church. Just let me in. I like football. Go away, vicar. You know, I had that for months. And then they finally let me in. And it was hilarious because the, like, the first few weeks, they didn't swear in front of me. They were all very nice. Oh, they say a bad word. And they go, oh, sorry, sorry, vicar. Vicar's off. I'm not a vicar. But, so they were very polite for the first few weeks. And then they just were normal again. So, uh, and that was great. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, get alongside these men. Something that what Spud was talking about earlier, um, the Bob. But, like, we have to go to them. So this is where they were. And then... Um, and I, I said, I'm going to go every week. I'm going to pick a night. I'm going to pick Monday nights. Monday night football. I was selfish, okay? Monday night football. I could watch the football, hang out with these guys. That was great. Monday night was lock-in night. Okay? Pro prophetic, I know. Uh, so lock-in night for the Americans just means the pub doesn't close, okay? But they lock the doors and don't let anybody else in. But if you're in before the door's locked, you can stay as long as you want. So it might as well be like a morgue for some of them. So anyway, so Monday night's lock-in night. So I stayed Monday night's. They did football. We played actually Monday. Monday nights was the best night. You played football, come back to the pub, watched the football, talked about football, hung out with these guys, and I would drive them home. I'd have one beer, and they just think, well, how can you have one beer and not have 25 beers? And I was like, it's quite easy. But anyway, uh, and they were fascinated with this, got friendly with them. And then what started to happen is when I dropped them home late at night, 
they all started to choose who would be dropped off last so that actually they could tell me some stuff and I could pray for them. And this was the start of the things. And then after a few months, it was like, I was praying for the guys and I've be, become their friends now. And, and I was like, how are these guys real? I'm, I'm only here for another year. How are these guys going to encounter you in a real way, Jesus? And I, I just had this, it was the Lord just said, uh, take them away with you to help other people who need help. I was like, right, let's do it. And you see, all these guys used to go on trips. They used to go on road trips to Europe. They weren't allowed to fly out of Newcastle anymore or Sunderland or get the boat out because they were just binge drinking road trips. These were hard men, you know, tattoos and eyelids type thing, working, literally did. Uh, uh, you know, hard men, they, they went in these binge drinking things across Europe and racked the place and they weren't allowed to fly out of their country or their cities and they weren't allowed to get the boats out of the cities. And I thought, let's do a road trip with a difference. Let's, instead of going on a binge drinking tour around Europe, will you come with me to help some people? And I was sitting in the pub and I had this thought, and I get quite competitive, okay? I like to play sports and games. In the pub, they play dominoes. I didn't know I could get so competitive over dominoes. Fives and threes, and they played poker. They played all these different things. And then I was playing dominoes with them in a wee competition, and this guy was asking me questions about God. All I wanted to do was win the dominoes competition. Talk to me about God later. And, and all this stuff was happening. So, but then the Holy Spirit started to kick and goes, this guy's actually asking genuine questions. Now, this pub, uh, this working class pub, it's, it's just like two living rooms. It literally is two living rooms in a house, but they've turned into a pub. And uh, so as, as this guy's asking, and, and, the Holy, and we know when we sense God is in the room, uh, and as I look up from trying to win the game, this guy, his name's Rob, he's a 33-year-old car mechanic. He's asked me all these questions. And then he throws out this, what I had just asked God the day before. He said this, and it, was a, it, wasn't, it wasn't a throwaway comment, it was a genuine question. He says, Jasper, how on earth am I ever going to encounter God? Everyone stops, everyone pauses with their drink. You know, everyone looks in the pub, everyone's like, <laughs> they're like, okay. That's why I said, I guarantee you, you will encounter God if you come away with me and help some people in need. He goes, what do you mean? I goes, you guys go on all these trips to Europe. What if, what if you came to Europe with me and we helped others? I have a friend in Romania who runs a charity with Romanian gypsies. I, I started to tell them about this little thought I had as it was just developing in front of me about how we could go and help serve them in the winter where it's the worst and serve them food and uh, look after them and build some homes and just like do some men's stuff together, but serve people in need. And everyone's still listening at this time. And Rob, this guy across me, I can notice. He's starting to get uh, like watery eyes. And he puts his pipe down. He says, Jasper, I've wanted to do something like that all my life, but nobody would ever ask me. He said, I'm asking you. Do you want to come? He says, I'll come. I wanted to do something like that all my life and nobody asked me and my heart broke. And so we started to do fundraisers in the pub, poker nights. I, 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 I won the poker nights and they were like, this is just, just give them the money. There's no point in playing against God. This is the, things that, this is the kind of things that they were saying. 
uh, we did sports quizzes. They, they, you know, all this kind of stuff happened. We went to Romania on a road trip of a difference. Uh, <laughs> ten hooligans from Newcastle upon Tyne who were racist, who were everything, and they encountered God in incredible ways. Some of them were healed in the pubs or in crime with me a few weeks after. That's this huge effect. None of them became Christians. None of them became Christians. But they encountered God in an incredible way. And I trust that God will continue to move in their lives. And this is the thing that uh, with Jesus, with these men who have no hope, feeling inadequate, feeling hopeless, with Jesus, hope finds a home. And the men in your community and the men that we have and the men that we need to go to, if we can inspire them and ask them and join in with the things of God. You know, the disciples didn't have it all figured out when Jesus asked them to join in with him. They didn't have a theology on how to feed 5,000. They hadn't done it before. They didn't have a clue. So he says, come and have a go. Come and help others with me and you will discover how God moves in those people's lives, but also in how he moves in your life as you do stuff with others. And as men, we have to realize that we are far too protective of mission in our church. When I was a youth worker, I used to interview my young people who could go on the mission trip and those who were the, the most spiritual will take them on a mission trip. What a load of nonsense. It's not scriptural. It's not biblical. We need to take people who who have no clue about Jesus, take them on a mission trip so that they meet Jesus helping others in your churches, in your men's ministry. You know, do not be afraid to bring those guys who you would think would never have a clue to join in with some mission and some activities in the name of Jesus and see Jesus show up in incredible ways. So with Jesus, hope finds a home. The second encounter I want us to think about is this uh, uh, the last thing that Jesus actually says to Peter before he dies. So, um, uh, if you're going to, your last words are important, right? Aren't they? You want to make your last words count. Peter is his, uh, one of his best friends. He has this opportunity to, to say something to him um, uh, before he knows he's going to die. And I just love this because it, this is why I love it because it just shows off who Jesus really is. What a dude he is. What an incredible man he is. It makes me fall in love with him again as I read some of these passages. So very simply, verse 10, Luke, Luke 22. I'm just going to read this verse because I'm uh, uh, already speaking too much. Uh, Luke 22, verse 31. Uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. And it's this verse. So when you have repented and turned back to me, Simon, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. The last thing, the most profound thing that Jesus wants to say uh, to one of his best friends is, Peter, be a good friend. Peter, lock arms with your brothers. Peter, stand shoulder and shoulder. When you come back to me, make sure you go out of your way to strengthen your friends. Make sure you go out of your way to, to, to stand alongside them, to help them. Friendship is so important to Jesus Christ. For his best friend that he's talking to before he go, and he said, make sure you're a good friend to your other friends. It's how he values friendship. This makes me think of Jesus in a whole new light. Wow, what a good friend he was. Wow, he loves friendship. Wow, 
I'm his friend. He's my friend. This guy, Jesus, he's my friend. I'm going to show a, a, a wee video clip that actually is this verse just written out on a video screen. Uh, you'll see it. It's quite a cool moment. You, lots of people will have seen it before. Johnny has to win and to be sure of taking the title. And right now he seems to have lost control of his legs. And this is worrying. Oh, and he's starting to slow, and there is a little way to go. There's half a K to go, and Johnny is running out of time and is losing. He's losing his sense of direction. This is worrying. Oh, goodness me. This is a horrible sight. Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course and Alistair's stopped to help him along and Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my god, I cannot believe what we are seeing here. Matt, is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownie brothers arm in arm. But it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownlee and they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third but Johnny can hardly stand and Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me. What an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel. I've never seen anything like that anywhere in world sports. Worrying scenes all round. Isn't that class? That's this verse. This idea that we can get alongside our brothers who are struggling, not to promote ourselves or not to push ourselves forward, but as we get alongside our brothers whose the rug's been pulled from underneath their feet or they're struggling or they need somebody to fall back and put an arm around them or catch up with them and put an arm around them and then we push them over the line ahead of us. Wow. Peter, when you come back to me, Strengthen your brothers. Who are the brothers that you're going out of the way right now? Who are they that you're going out of your way to to strengthen? 
Who are the people you are going out of your way to, to strengthen? There's people that you know that things have happened in their lives and you just haven't managed to get around or find the time to go and see how they are. You need, after this conference, pick up the phone and see how they're doing. There's people you know, they've gone through loads of stuff and work and relationships, finances. They feel as if they're rugged and, and, and nobody's came alongside them because they're not part of the church or they're not part of your community, but you know them through work or through something else and nobody else is going to get alongside them. So who are the brothers that you need to strengthen? Young people in Ireland are worth the fight. Even those young people that society writes off or their schools write off or communities write off, even their own families write them off, these young people are especially worth the fight. I have the privilege of fighting for one such boy. He's not a boy, he's 25 years old now. And uh, let's call him Stevie. And uh, Stevie has been in and out of our house, our home, where, uh, for, the, for the last, well, in our lives for the last 10 years. He, he, he was homeless uh, when he was 14 or 15, found him on the streets, lived with us for a few months, and then went, went AWOL for quite a long time after that. Um, uh, but the last couple of years is, is back in our, uh, our family's life. Thursday nights are Stevie nights in our house. Comes around for food every night, every Thursday, or other days that work, and, uh, and he has a place at our table. Uh, Stevie has, um, carries a lot of scars of brokenness, of addiction of uh, things that have been done to him, things that he has done to others, and, and he carries these uh, scars around with him, uh, um, uh, but none more so than the wind of rejection, that the ones who uh, should love him the most have rejected him, the ones that he loved the most as in his family he doesn't feel he has a place. And that's, that's horrendous. Uh, but Stevie is an example of thousands and thousands of young people in our country, in our nation, who feel rejected, abandoned, and not loved. And they need men to strengthen them get alongside them and say you're worth the fight. And it takes a long time, but there's so much love. Stevie has encountered God in incredible ways where God has showed up in hurt and pain. I'm almost sometimes jealous of the way God, I'm not jealous, but I love the way God has turned up. I want him to turn up like that for me sometimes, but he turns up in the hurt and the pain in incredible ways. And Stevie is learning and building his life. He just put this week his first deposit away for, a, for his first ever car. He's working again. He, he's building his life. He's trusting in God. Things are really, really tough for these kind of guys and girls in our society. But they need men of faith to stand with them and say, I'm with you. 
here for you. Jesus has more hope for Stevie than he has for himself. A, re a recent survey from Barna shows that young men who are single and in a low-income paid job are the most loneliest in our society. So young single men in low-paid jobs are the most loneliest in our society. The church needs to support and encourage these young men. Could you be one of those men who respond? So we're asking today, could you be one of those men? Let's move on to um, a last piece of Scripture very quickly. Um, uh, we, we, uh, uh, well, you will all know this Scripture. Um, it's Peter's denial, and um, it's one of the most poignant moments in all Scripture. It's a moment between Peter and Jesus that we can all recognize. Again, it's, 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 it's one of those moments. We didn't physically look into the eyes of Jesus like Peter did, but in our gut and in our heart, we have had that same look of Jesus whenever we have disappointed Him or denied Him or turned our back on Him. We know this scene. We know how it feels. We can imagine ourselves and picture ourselves in Peter's position, but I want us to think about it afresh this morning. So, let's read quickly. Luke 22 together, just a few verses, starting at verse 56. Um, a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight Picture the scene. Okay, is, is Jesus on the floor? Is he lying down, beaten and bruised? Is he on his knees? Is he, is he bound and tied? You know, picture the scene. The rooster crows and Jesus looks across the courtyard and meets Peter right in the eye. It's described as one of the most um, poignant of all scriptures. It's one of the most incredible moments in history, I feel. That moment of Jesus' eyes meeting his best friend's eye. He's just denied him in the courtyard. But here's what I want us to think about. Have you thought of what way Jesus looks at Peter in that very moment? Have you thought in your mind what way Jesus looks at Peter with his eyes? So in my mind, Jesus in that moment does not look at Peter with the eyes that say, I told you so. Like, oh, I knew you were going to die. I told you so. I, I told you it was going to happen. You know, if you picture Jesus' eyes, he, does, he doesn't meet Peter's eyes now and, and has that look like, told you so. He doesn't roll his eyes. I'm a brilliant eye roller. You know, I knew that was going to happen. You know, he doesn't roll his eyes. Do you know whenever you're a kid and your parents told you off and they shouted at you and you did something wrong and they scolded you and that was okay, but if they gave you if they didn't shout at you, if they just gave you the, I am so disappointed in you, you know, those eyes that you can just, I'm so disappointed in you, you know, 
You would no, please just shout at me and tell me. I can handle it. I can take it in the chin. Don't give me the disappointed eyes. I've made young people cry with disappointed eyes. You know, Jesus didn't look at Peter with, like, I'm so disappointed in you, Peter, for denying me eyes. It's not the way he met Peter's eyes. He didn't meet Peter's eyes. And this is what some of you are thinking. And say, shame on you. Jesus doesn't look at you with eyes of shame when he sees you, when he meets your gaze. Some of you think he does. Some of you think that if Jesus was to look across the courtyard of your life, his eyes would be full of shame for you, and that is not true. I see Jesus meeting Peter's eyes and he has a look in his eyes that is unsurprised by Peter's failure. He looks at him unsurprised that he could do such a thing and without having to say a word, he looks at him with hope in his eyes. He looks at him with hope in his eyes. It's that look of hope, that look of love, that look of passion that says, Peter, it's okay, I still see you, even in the denial, even in the failure, even in this moment, Peter, I still have hope in you, I am still available for you, Peter, I still love you in this failure, Peter, you are worth the fight. That's what Jesus says in this moment across the courtyard. And Jesus looks across the courtyard of your life right into your eyes with such hope. And he says to you and he says to me, you're worth the fight. Even in your shame, even in your denial, even in your sin, Jesus looks at you across the courtyard right into your eyes in that moment like a best friend with hope in his eyes for you. No matter what you have done, no matter where you are, no matter what you face. That's why as we study Peter, as he goes through his own epistles and his own letters, he, he writes about hope so much, doesn't he? You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer... Always be ready, because he's my best, he's my hope, he's my best friend, he sees me in my dirt, but yet even in my dirt, it's when he met me. You know, we have this idea in our head that he, he, he doesn't meet us in the dirt, but Daniel wasn't saved from the lion's den, he was saved in the lion's den, wasn't he? Jonah wasn't saved from the fish, he was saved in the fish. Peter wasn't saved from the storm when he started to sink, he was rescued right in it when he was knee deep in the sin. I wasn't saved from my sin, I was saved while I was in my sin in the middle of it, knee deep in the muck, and Jesus reached out to me. And he reaches out to you, and then we give our lives to him, and we think he doesn't still reach out to us, and we try to cover up our shame and hide it, pretend we're okay. Jesus looks at you and says, you're worth the fight. I see you. With Jesus, failure is never a full stop. Our sin is never a dead end. Jesus does not give up on you. He does not lose hope in you. He says you're worth the fight. Because the Lord himself fights for you.
and you love him? Do you, does it take your breath away and they get goosebumps to realize that he's your friend? This person, Jesus, that we see here with his best friend is actually speaking to you and me who he calls us his friend. Let, let's stand. Let's stand. We're, we're going to uh, go for coffee, but I want to pray before we go to coffee. And um, do, do you need to, any announcements? When coffee or who goes where? Spud? Any announcements? Who goes where? Coffee? Anything like that? Uh, um, uh, let, let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that you see us where we are and your eyes meet us across that courtyard, across that distance, wherever we are, and you meet us and you look at us with hope, love, compassion, and generosity. Lord, I pray for every man here and myself, Lord, that we have confidence of the love you have for us and recognition that we ourselves worth fighting for because you say that we are and lord even in the place that some of us may find ourselves where we can't meet your gaze because of shame lord i pray for vulnerability in the rest of this uh, uh, conference today a vulnerability to uh, uh, to let you into some of that stuff we feel shameful about so we pray for openness pray for vulnerability we pray for honesty and we pray lord that we will return your gaze with love and affection for what you've done in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.